and whether you're uh, an Indigenous person or a non-Indigenous person, all of us are in this together. And if we can understand the human aspect of it, the cultural aspect of it, the human rights aspect of it, then that will lead us from our hearts, not just our heads, from our hearts to do the right thing together. Because together we've got this. That was the voice of Sheila Watt-Cloutier, who was interviewed in April 2019 by Christine Rosenfeld in conjunction with the Cultural Studies Colloquium at George Mason University. The Cultural Studies Department at George Mason University focuses on interdisciplinary research and doctoral training. This year's colloquium series examines capitalism, climate change, and culture. The fall colloquium posed the question, how did we get into this mess? While the spring 2019 colloquium poses the question, where do we go from here? Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. My name is Christine Rosenfeld, an assistant professor over in the geography and geoinformation science department here at George Mason University, and also an alumna of the cultural studies doctoral program here at GMU as well. And today I'm very pleased to be here with Sheila Watt-Cloutier, who has many accolades of which I'm, I know I cannot do justice, but among them include human rights and indigenous advocate, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, former chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council and author of The Right to be Cold, One Woman's Fight to Protect the Arctic and Save the Planet from Climate Change. Sheila, thank you so much for joining and sharing your time with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. So to start, I'd like to ask you to describe to our listeners impacts that Inuit have and continue to experience due to climate change, specifically how culture and cultural vitality is, is impacted due to environmental degradation and also perhaps how cultural loss is countered amidst this degradation. Well, uh, one has to understand that uh, Inuit culture is based on the ice, the snow and the cold. For us, it's all about mobility and transportation. And when that starts to become precarious, then it becomes an issue of safety and security, first and foremost. And so it affects and impacts our lives on a daily basis, meaning the ice is now forming much later in the fall, breaking up much earlier in the spring. And it's, it's not as thick as it used to be because the ocean is warming from under as well. And so the ice forms very differently. And so the traditional knowledge of our hunters that have been with us for millennia in guiding us for, with safety and the ability to harvest the wonderful organic food that we go out to the land to hunt and fish is now all very unpredictable. And we have more and more safety issues involved as a result of that. More hunters are falling through the thinning ice without really understanding or really fully knowing that that traditional knowledge that has been there for millennia has guided us in a very safe fashion. But now the ice is, is not what it used to be because it's forming very differently, as I mentioned. And, and so those issues are, the first, are, are really the first uh, challenges that we have in terms of safety and security. You know, we are a people who still hunt and fish on a daily basis. We are living in a modern world. We are working in modern settings, there's no doubt. But we remain extremely connected to the hunting and harvesting of our wildlife as it is a highly nutritious food that feeds us and keeps us warm in minus 50. Uh, it's not cut Lipton cup of soup that's going to keep us warm. It's going to be the wonderful, rich, nutriently rich seal meat and caribou and fish 
that keep us warm as while we're out there uh, being connected to a way of life that we've known for millennia. And so those are the, you know, the, the bigger changes that are happening are around the ice, of course. And the melting of that ice that's happening in the Arctic is connecting to what is happening in the rest of, uh, to the rest of our planet because the Arctic's ice is the cooling system. It is the air conditioner, if you will, and it's breaking down and it's impacting negatively and changing ocean currents and, and, um, and it's, it's creating havoc. You know, the, the droughts, the floods, the intense hurricanes, all of that is really connected to what's happening in the Arctic because what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. It is impacting everywhere else. So all of these changes, new species of birds and animals and fish uh, are making their way up. The tree line is moving forward. There's more lush uh, where there used to be just very small brush. Um, you name it, the changes are quite stark. And when you talk about in your book also the impacts, as you've just articulated, to particularly hunting practices and the, how that is a conduit for transmitting cultural knowledge, how is that being countered or offset today? What are some efforts or new practices um, to address that loss? Mm-hmm. Well, our the ingenuity of Inuit culture kicks in because, after all, you know the ingenuity of Inuit culture that most people are not aware of is that we are the inventors of the hayak. You know, the boat that has been replicated worldwide that was Inuit made right from the beginning, and the engineering and the architect of that boat is just ingenious. We are the people who can build a home out of snow. Imagine this, warm enough for your babies to sleep in, your mothers to birth in, all of that. The ingenuity, once again, of all of that. So with the rapid changes that are happening, uh, you know, the adaptability of our hunters and our seasoned hunters and elders who can navigate through these kinds of rapid changes is quite remarkable. It's still the same. It's not that we are... You know, we should be just thinking about, oh, let's just adapt because we've got it in us to be able to do that. Yes, of course we do, but that shouldn't be the issue. The issue should also be addressing the mitigation and the the lowering of greenhouse gas emissions because there will come a time, and there comes a time many times that that doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily there for us because it happens so fast and the, the rapid changes that are happening, creating the unsafety and the unpredictability of situations for us. But the ingenuity of uh, going back to that allows for the, the, the adaptability of our hunters to navigate through different scenarios of routes, for example, hunting routes to go further and more, a more, a more distant routing to get to the same hunting and fishing grounds that they have been able to get to before. However, that comes with a cost. The economic cost to that is that the longer routes that you have to take to get this, to the same food source will cost you more on fuel and ammunition and supplies to get there. And also it becomes, again, more precarious because those are different routes that you've had to, you now have to take. And so th- there's all these situations that are arising that oftentimes, as I say, we lose people in that process. But again, the adaptability issue is one that is, is kicking in and we're trying our darndest, but, you know, it's not always safe. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Can you talk about the origin of the phrase, the right to be cold, which you go over a bit um, in your book? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, you know, when we started this work, we were not just working on climate change issues because for us, everything is interconnected. We had been working on the persistent organic pollutants, the the toxins that ended up coming up through the the weather patterns and 
uh, into our food chain. And we had to deal with that and we had to address and, and be part of the United Nations um, negotiations on, on, on putting a human face to a very chemical story. Because that's the whole work, the crux of the work that I do is humanizing the issues and putting a human face and a heartbeat to the issues that most people tend to see as, um, you know, academic or political or economic or scientific issues. The work that I have been doing and many others, but I led the campaign in, in, in those days when I was elected as chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, which is a council that represents Inuit in Greenland, in Alaska, in Canada, and in Russia. We are 165,000 strong at the top of the world in the four countries, and that's where we live. To defend the rights and interest of Inuit at the international level is much of the work that I did in the past. And so, you know, trying to get the world to understand that we count and, and we are important at the top of the world is a daunting task, of course. And so, you know, for years and for decades under the, uh, you know, the umbrella of the ICC, the Inuit Circumpolar Council and other organizations, we have been trying to defend our way of life. Our, you know, because as the ice goes, uh, it is our right to health, our right to educate our children, our right to safety, um, our right to our homes. All of those rights that are already entrenched in international law is something that we have been trying to defend for a long, long time and that we continue to try to defend. And so um, uh, there was a point in time I was being interviewed just as we were starting to launch that legal petition uh, to uh, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, that indeed the inaction at the time was the United States, the inaction to protect the rights of Inuit of the Arctic as a result of the not taking it seriously to lower the greenhouse gas emissions, we started to really make this a human rights issue. And so we, we two years of preparation, we we worked on this legal petition, 167-page legal petition with 700 and some odd legal footnotes to it. So you can imagine the kind of work that went into that. And we worked with two American organizations, the Center for International Environmental Law in Washington, D.C., and with um, earthjustice.org in, 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 um, in San Francisco. And so the legal teams had gotten together to piece the legal part of all of this but we, we brought in our hunters and our elders to make this a very powerful piece of work. And, um, and so what we were doing, and, and as I was explaining all of this work that we were doing, and this was in Milan, Milan, Italy, I believe, when we were going to the uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, to announce that we were going to take the route of connecting legally the, the issue of, of climate change to human rights, and that the human rights of Inuit were at a we're coming at a cost here uh, as a result of that. Um, and, and I was saying our right to health, our right to, to educate, all of those things that I have just mentioned. Uh, the journalist said, you're, so in a sense, you're really defending your right to be cold. And I said, that's it. <laughs> uh, that is it. And that's, and that's what really, it was just one of those moments that it all just gelled together. And, and that became the, the work that I, I continued to do. And that became the title of the book that I wrote was that our human right to be cold. And not that we're wanting to be shivering outside and cold. That's not the point. The point is that the Arctic's environment, the wildlife, the people, we thrive on the cold for our livelihoods, for our, our health, for everything. And, uh, and we train our children on the ice and snow 
in a powerful way for life, not just for harvesting skills, but for life skills. While you're out there on that ice or on that land, uh, you're waiting for the snow to fall, the ice to form, the winds to die, the animals to surface. You are teaching patience. You're learning patience. You're learning how to be courageous. You're learning how to be bold under pressure, to withstand stressful situations, to be persistent, not to give up. Uh, how not to be impulsive, how to develop your sound judgment and your wisdom. That's the hallmark of Inuit culture is to teach wisdom to our children. And so all of those remarkable ways in which we teach our children is are now being minimized as a result. So as the ice goes, so too does the wisdom of the people. And so that for me is is what keeps me going is remembering my childhood uh, traveling only by dog team the first 10 years of my life, traveling with my fa- family in a close-knit community that remained very connected and bonded to one another, to its food source, to its environment. That just keeps me going. You know, I'm like the Energizer Bunny that just won't stop, even at this age now, I say, although I get tired. But it's still something that's really important to me because it's the human cost of this issue that I try to bring to the world and how important Inuit culture is to the rest of the world. Well, that's a good quality to have. You're serving us well in your your battery-like energy. So (laughs) Um, just to stick with the concept of adopting a human rights framework, which is obviously um, what you forward just now and in your book, um, what have been some of the challenges associated with that framework or did it stick right away in terms of your policy work um, and other advocates you work with and for? Well, you know, I think I've always said that the the doctrine of collective uh, human rights brings people together, and it brings uh, cultures together, it brings countries together, it brings us as a common humanity together. And so that's why I continue to keep pushing the fact that human rights is the way to go. It's not just about writing dry reports that nobody's going to really connect to. It's not just about focusing on the wildlife either. You know, there are many situations that have uh, arisen over the past, um, you know, many years where the, the, the people of the South or the people not, that don't live in the Arctic tend to understand the wildlife of the Arctic more than its people. So to try to uh, get the world to understand that the issue of the, 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 the challenge that the people of the Arctic face is not just about polar bears, is really a tough one because the world, you know, there are, again, I say this in all of the talks that I give, that there are big companies that have capitalized on the romanticizing of the wildlife of the Arctic uh, rather than focusing on the people that are really negatively impacted. And it's not to say that we don't value, of course we do, that we're very connected. The land is us, we are the land and the land is us and our wildlife are very much a part of who we are. Um, and we have a natural conservationist way of, 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 of dealing with our wildlife, for sure, with a great deal of respect. But at the same time, you know, these big companies that have romanticized our wildlife, you know, it sells their product, but it also sells the notion uh, that it taps into the emotional stances of people rather than the reality of a situation that polar bears are not frolicking around on the ice drinking Coca-Cola. There, <laughs> One is lunch, by the way. Um, and so it, it just feeds the misunderstanding, you know, more so and deepens that un- misunderstanding uh, to oftentimes, you know, even the, 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 the misguided animal rights movements that have really done 
you know, some damage to many, much damage to many of our cultures in that way. And so I try to bring in that understanding that if we keep it at the human level, not just the human dimension, uh, the human face, the heartbeat, uh, but the human rights angle to it all, then I find that people can connect to that much better and that we can all stand together in trying to address these issues as a common humanity. And so the human rights angle is not just, uh, you know, some cliche or some, some, some uh, you know, something that was important 10 years ago when we launched the petition. No, it, it, it is. And, 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 you know, the United Nations, Amnesty International, and many other organizations now have, you know, because the petition was ahead of its time. It really was. Uh, where people didn't quite understand what what is what climate change is a human rights issue. What is that? And and you know I, we I even had someone in Amnesty once say she's doing what until he got it and he thought oh yeah we're used to seeing individual rights being violated violence or, or torture all that, but we don't you know we don't fully understand that 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 it can be a collective rights that are being violated such as culture such as people who rely on the well-being of their environment. And so it, it brought a better understanding in that way, and it continues to bring a better understanding. I mean, you know, I launched that petition in 2005, and it, the other day I was at a talk, and they said, oh, and it was, it was fellow Indigenous people, but not Inuit, but in, in other parts of the southern part of Canada, and said, I never would have thought of it as a human rights issue. And this is like, how many years later? More than a decade later. So it, it's still an educating uh, process. It's you know I call these my the, the teaching moments, not in a, a aggressive or confrontational way because I've always tried to engage in the in the politics of influence rather than the politics of protest. And for me, uh, that that brings better the the way in which we can understand one another um, through this lens of of partnership. So in your book, I enjoyed how you incorporate so much personal narrative throughout. And this probably relates to the last question you just answered, but why have you chosen to do so? And what role would you say narrative has played in your efforts in raising awareness and combating effects of climate change? Hmm. Well, because it is in one lifetime that I remember what it was like. It's not like, yes, many stories from my grandmother, from my mother, you know, um, but in one lifetime, in my living memory, I remember what it was like traveling by dog team safely, hunting and harvesting and fishing safely, and, and being grounded by nature and the beautiful Arctic world that I've come from. I didn't know any English till I was starting school at the age of six. We lived very traditionally with ba barely anything, nothing, you know? But yet we didn't feel like we didn't have nothing. We, we were just enriched by culture and the bond with each other and the community um, and by our tradition and our wonderful, what we call our wonderful country food. Country food is very bonding. It's a real connecting to one another, not just to each other, but to our ancestry, to the hunt. There's ceremony around that, you know, the first hunt of our young men. All of these things that I grew up with and I write about in the book were precious moments and um, and I was there when the changes started to happen, and the impacts of our health and our social issues were just tremendous. 
Um, and so for me, it's, it's to give back and honor where I've come from to be able to do this work. And each day I face myself in the mirror and say, I am honored to be doing this work. Use me at your will, whoever that is, whatever that is out there that, uh, that we are connected to on a cosmic level. And for me, you know, I, I don't, um, my life and my work are one of the same. You know, there, there is no disconnect between that. And, and the other question on this is that everything is connected. And I always say that it's all interconnected. Um, environment, um, health, the social issues, all of those are, are interconnected. And someone once asked me, even in our community, said, why do you spend so much time on environment when we have so many social and health problems? And my immediate answer was, there's no disconnect between any of that. You know, if we think we have problems and issues now in dealing with our health and social problems, take away our climate and our environment and the ice, and you ain't seen nothing yet in terms of what the challenges will be like in the future. You know, what our children, that we, as we prepare them, as I say, you know, for, for the challenges and opportunities of life on that, in that cold, that ice and snow, I mean, you take that away, it, it's going to be very difficult for us if we don't, if we think it's difficult now, which it already is. Uh, you know, we, we are known in the Inuit world to have the highest suicide rates in North America. You know, m many of that, much of that is from the, the tumultuous changes that have happened, the historical traumas that have happened. Uh, which very few people know about, and I've written that in, 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 in my book, we, we have to understand that that trauma as well, that the human trauma that has happened to Inuit and to the indigenous peoples, not just of, of my own country of Canada, but in this, in this country of the United States and many other countries, is the same trauma that we're inflicting upon our planet, which is a living, breathing entity. And so we can't and, and if there's a takeaway in any of this, is that human trauma and planet trauma are one of the same. Children who have been through trauma, who have not had the, the opportunity to heal, have been given the mechanisms to cope and deal with that, that trauma, are going to come out with erratic behavior in unpredictable ways and, and, and violence and so on. The same, our earth is, is reacting the same way. As we have violated it so much in so many ways, it's erratic unpredictable and, 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 and in violent storms. If we could understand that what humans and, and our planet are both living entities and we are reacting in the same way. And so if we can come away with understanding that human trauma, planet trauma, one of the same. So to close a bit of a pedagogical inquiry, given that some of our listeners, myself included, are instructors of various courses at the college level, could you share with us how best we might approach teaching about climate change impacts both within and outside of the Arctic and what the key takeaways you would want to leave students and young people today with are? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I've said a fair amount already that that would answer that. But at the same time, maybe I can add the fact that um, it is really important to not see these things uh, as, as separate from yourself, as, whether you're a student or a teacher but that we are all interconnected as a common humanity. And as I said earlier, the Arctic is very much connected to the rest of the planet. In fact, if we save the, the Arctic, uh, if we protect the Arctic, we save the planet. Um, and, and, and when you think that about all of the, the things that are happening up there in terms of the melt, especially the Greenland melt, and how it's creating a sea level rise in other places in the world, you can't get clearer than that in understanding the connection 
of what's happening in the Arctic that's affecting the, at the human level, the human cost, the melting of the ice, you know, really the human cost with Inuit and the, and the culture that we live in to the people who are now being relocated as a result of their homes going under the sea because of the sea level rising. And so we have to understand those human connections and how important that is. But also the fact that um, the world and the politics will keep playing themselves out as though it were just the only thing that matters is politics and economics. You can't silo these issues. And, and it's important not to silo them and to understand that it is a whole that we're talking about. And the whole is our connection to one another. And whether you're uh, an Indigenous person or a non-Indigenous person, all of us are in this together. And if we can understand the human aspect of it, the cultural aspect of it, the human rights aspect of it, then that will lead us from our hearts, not just our heads, from our hearts to do the right thing together. Because together we've got this. Thank you so very much for sharing all that you did with us today. And we certainly look forward to hearing your talk shortly. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this interview with Sheila Watt Cloutier, which is a production of the Cultural Studies Colloquium hosted by the George Mason University Cultural Studies Department with support from the Department of Communications, the Global Affairs Program, the Department of History and Art History, the Interdisciplinary Curriculum Collaborative, the Department of Philosophy, the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution, the Shar School of Policy and Government, the Woman and Gender Studies Program, and University Life. We thank WGMU for the use of their recording studio. This interview was conducted by Christine Rosenfeld, an assistant professor in the Geography and Geoinformation Sciences Department and an alumna of the Cultural Studies PhD program. The episode was produced and edited by me, Richard Todd Stafford, a candidate for the PhD in Cultural Studies. The colloquium series has been organized by Professor Roger Lancaster. (music) 